Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hi, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome to Future City. On this show, we'll explore emerging trends and important policy issues across cities and countries and ask, how could this work in Baltimore? We change a conversation from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next for Baltimore? We live in a society deeply invested in ownership. It's been the classic way to gain, sustain, and grow family wealth. It's been the mark of adulthood and stability, ownership of a car, of a house, of a phone, clothes, has been a given for most of recent history. But will this remain the case? With the rise of the so-called sharing economy, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, and movements like Marie Kondo's minimalist organization, ownership doesn't always hold the same appeal. Urban Wire's Millennial Homeownership Report finds that the homeownership rate of millennials between the ages of 25 and 34 was 37% in 2015, approximately eight percentage points lower than the homeownership rate of Gen Xers and baby boomers at the same age. While plenty say delayed marriage rates and a fledgling economy are to blame, there may be more going on here. We as a society, as a country, are having an ethical and cultural reckoning with the very concept of ownership. That's what we'll be exploring on today's show the things we own, why we own them, and if we even need to own them. What does the future look like when it comes to the future of ownership? First to join us on the show is Ben Tarnoff. He's a journalist and the founder of Logic Magazine and the author of a recent article in The Guardian entitled The Future, where borrowing is the norm and ownership is luxury. This is fascinating. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I, I want to start by by reading the opening paragraph of your article, just so the listeners can get a sense of where we're going. Uh, you write, imagine life without ownership. You own nothing. You rent everything. You do this because it's cheaper. You pay pennies or fractions of pennies per day to have a bed to sleep in or a winter coat to keep you warm. You scale up or down as needed. Maybe your partner moves in, so you swap your single bed for a queen, or winter ends, so you return your coat. You are always optimizing. You pay for precisely what you use, when you use it, and nothing more. So for some people, this might sound like science fiction, but your argument is that it's not so far out there anymore, is it? Well, I think it's certainly possible that this is a near to medium future. I think a few years ago, there was a bit more optimism about this scenario arriving sooner rather than later. I guess, depending on whether you see that as optimism or pessimism of that scenario that, that you just uh, you quoted there. So I, I think it remains conceivable. Uh, I think the technologies that would allow that vision to emerge uh, exist in some form and are being continued to develop. But I think the real question is whether there'll be much of a economic incentive to, to develop this type of scenario. It seems like a lot of these conversations really accelerated 
over over the past decade because it seems like the common idea the common thing that everyone was brought up to understand is well you need to own something you know that that ownership is better that equity is better uh and then 2008 happened and then we watched equities drop we watched values drop we watched people lose a lot of money on things that everyone told them would just consistently go up and i think that veil was lifted how much of an impact do you think that the economic downturn had on the growth of the sharing economy? Well, it's interesting because the term first arrives around 2007, which is, of course, the year that, that brings us both the beginnings of the, the financial crisis and then the later the Great Recession and also the iPhone, right? So it's kind of the birth of the smartphone era where suddenly everyone has the Internet and GPS in people's pockets. So the common wisdom here is that those two phenomena, the iPhone and the crisis, is what brought us the sharing economy. Because on the one hand, consumers are looking for ways to save money. On the other hand, workers are looking for new ways to earn money. And smartphones, really the mobile internet, give both of them new ways to transact. And so when we talk about this idea of, of, of the sharing economy, uh, I just want to make sure that, that the listeners are all on the same sheet. What exactly do you mean by the sharing economy? That's a great question, and people will give you a range of answers. So it's a bit more contested than one might think. It's also a kind of a controversial term. Uh, others have, have proposed alternatives, things like the access economy, which actually are probably a lot more precise. The thing with the sharing economy is the phrase that's a bit self-serving for the companies who participate in it, right? Because if something is market-mediated, I'm paying you for a service to take me around in your car or to rent me your apartment. It's not exactly sharing, right? But broadly, the term refers to companies like Uber and Airbnb uh, that enable or at least claim to enable users to capitalize on underutilized assets by sharing them uh, with consumers. Again, I'm not sure sharing is exactly the right word there, but for instance, you may only use your car, you know, 10% of the time. If you're using it as a driver, ferrying people around for rides, in theory, that's a more efficient utilization of that asset. Similar for Airbnb, right? Let's say you, you're going out of town for a month. It certainly would be a more efficient utilization of your apartment to lease it out for that short period of time to someone who needs it. So, so in your article, you noted that, uh, that last year, many people declared the sharing economy uh, as dead. What element do you think that people were referring to when they, when they said that, and were they right? Well, I think there's a sense of exhaustion with the idea of the sharing economy because it just feels very overhyped, you know, very oversold. Uh, you know, there was this big enthusiasm about the possibility of these apps that could allow you to rent a neighbor's power tools, you know, these kind of just wildly open marketplaces where folks could really borrow and rent almost anything. Hmm. A lot of that has faded. And now, of course, you have the, the, the big ones like Uber and Airbnb. But a lot of the initial enthusiasm over the quote-unquote sharing economy kind of penetrating every aspect of your life has receded a bit. And I think the conversation has probably turned to more what we would think of as the gig economy, the on-demand economy. So platforms like TaskRabbit, Fiverr, you know, the Uberization of everything, mm -hmm. not so much the traditional kind of sharing economy as it was defined in 07, 08. But it's interesting, and I guess, and, and I, I guess I'm trying to even understand the differences 
between them, right? Because, you know, when we talk about, you know, whether we're talking about gig economy, shared economy, et cetera, it, it comes back to the basic idea of the necessity for individual ownership of specific assets continues to wane, correct? I think that's certainly a piece of it. I think that would be the argument for, you know, the Uber, the Airbnb style app, which is you have something in your life that you're not using 100% of the time. So what if you leased it to someone who could use it? Again, I think it becomes a bit more complicated, right? Because in the case of Uber, it's not as if you're just leasing a car to somebody. You are actually performing a service because you're driving them around. Similarly, when you think about something like Airbnb, anyone who's ever rented out an apartment on Airbnb knows that it's not just as easy as putting the key under the mat, right? There's cleaning, there's upkeep, there's a lot of services that go with it. So I think the seamlessness of, of this idea is a bit of a deception, and I think once again might point to the sharing economy as a kind of rhetorical tool that's often used by these companies in more of a PR capacity rather than being very accurate in terms of what's happening underneath. When you first started hearing about, you know, t- can you can you remember the first time you heard the word Uber or the first time you heard the word Lyft or or Airbnb? What was your first reaction when you first he started hearing about this growing new thing that was burgeoning, but no one really had a sense of what it was yet? Yeah, I think my first impression was I was curious as to how it differed from a traditional taxi company, you know, and I think I, I figured that out. But initially, it, it felt kind of quite similar, right? And I think my memory also with something like Uber is that they initially pitched the product as kind of like a luxury car, right? It was kind of the, the black car service. So when I first started seeing them uh, around the city, that was my impression. It was like, oh, this is kind of like another you know, luxury sedan service. So the, the software element, I don't think really landed for me until later. And I think one of the interesting things, you know, and you, you take a look at Uber as an example, where it also gave people to have the chance to have a luxury taste of something without the luxury cost of something. Because, you know, I think particularly for, you know, particularly for millennials, but, but for all people, uh, you know, the idea of taking on a large ownership stake in a property or a vehicle that can be a huge investment. And there are still very real roadblocks that stand in the way for ownership for people to be able to advance in that type of pathway. Definitely. And I think it's interesting we're talking about Uber, right? Because when you talk about getting that service at a fraction of the cost, it's important to dig into how can Uber actually do that, right? And there, there are two reasons for that. One is pushing more and more costs down to the drivers. So the drivers are paying for insurance. They're paying for their gas. And this has created a kind of very well-documented cycle where drivers are, are really getting squeezed harder and harder by a company like Uber. Hmm. On the other hand, you have massive subsidies in the form of all of this private venture capital that's flowing into Uber. Mm-hmm. So our Uber rides are, to a great extent, subsidized like from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, from th- these various funds that are pumping capital into it in the hope that eventually they corner the market and can raise prices. But right now, Uber continues to just absolutely hemorrhage money. So it's still trying to conquer the market. It's not not at the point where it's actually turning the profit. And it also continues to take advantage of a, of a shifting uh, economy, where you have more people who are looking for outside ways to make cash, outside ways to make capital, flexible schedules, et cetera. And then you find these platforms that, are, that, are, that very much uh, stand at the ready to be able to benefit from that. 
That's absolutely right. And, and one could say that that element is actually what's most distinctive about many of these apps. You know, I think since we use the word tech, we tend to be drawn to the technological elements. But often those are not what's most distinctive or what's most useful about these companies. I mean, often the business model is built around contracting, regulatory arbitrage, you know, taking, uh, taking a certain advantage of these different opportunities that may be presented by uh, a sense of downward mobility, a sense of precariousness in the labor market. I think those are probably the, the biggest keys to the success of these companies. When you actually dig into the software, some of it is doing interesting stuff, but a lot of it is stuff you could do uh, you know, in, in an open source way. There, there's not often that much that's distinctive about the technology. So you end your article on uh, a very uh, on an ambiguous note, uh, where you wrote, and uh, and I'll just quote for the for the listeners. As always, technologies can be put to a range of purposes. A hammer might be a murder weapon, or a home improvement tool, depending on who's holding it. So, in your opinion, what future are we looking at? Are are, are the days of private ownership gone? I think the best way to look at something like the sharing economy or the types of experiments that we're talking about is, is not ultimately about the abolition of private ownership. It's the attempt to extend market relations, property relations into all aspects of our lives. Because if I'm your neighbor and I have the power tools, in a lot of normal circumstances, you might just knock on my door and I would just lend you the power tools. It's not a big deal. The world that these entrepreneurs and engineers are envisioning are one in which you provide some type of micropayment to me through an automated platform that allows you to take my power tools for a day. So I think it's kind of a political and social question, right? Like, which world would you rather live in? Hmm. I think for me, I'm kind of creeped out by the scenario where my neighbor can only borrow my power drill if he gives me a micropayment of, of some amount of unit. I don't really want to live in that type of community. And I think that's where we run up against some of the limits of these ideas is that as we extend market relations into every aspect of our lives, we might lose a lot of the human connection, social solidarity that makes life worth living. So, so let me ask you for your personal life then. Right now, what are the things that essentially you have gotten rid of? when it comes to your personal private ownership and which things do you never see yourself getting rid of when it comes to, you know, personal private ownership? Boy, this is a good Marie Kondo question. I've never <laughs> been very good at getting rid of things in my life. I have to be honest, not, not quite a hoarder at the level that it would make sense to have her uh, come into my home and I could get onto that show. But I would say, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's books. I would say I definitely hoard books. Mm. I can't get enough. I, I would have trouble throwing them out. They definitely spark joy for me. But, you know, I've never owned a car. Uh, I've been fortunate to live in places where I I didn't need one. Uh, You know, there's, there are a lot of things that I've managed to do without. So I think, again, it's, it's very much a personal determination about uh, what things one needs. But then I think the operative question in our conversation is how does one access the things one doesn't have? Mm. And one could imagine various forms of access that are not necessarily market-mediated. So that's the question, is do we want the market to mediate all of these forms of access, or do we want to carve out certain areas and say the market isn't actually the best mechanism for determining how we access a certain good? Well said, well said. And uh, I'm with you on books, Ben. I'm with you on books. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> 
Ben Tardoff. He's a journalist and the founder of Logic Magazine. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hi, I'm Wes Moore, and you are tuned in to Future City. On today's show, we're discussing the future of ownership. Are we moving toward a shared economy that leaves private ownership a thing of the past? Well, the feelings are mixed, because Americans still love to drive their cars. 88% of Americans own a car, and that's the second highest percentage in the world, behind only Italy. 84.5% of commuters use a car to get to work. So the idea of a car-free economy seems like a distant idea at best, but some will say it could be here sooner than we think. I'm now thrilled to be joined by Leanna Garfield, a journalist who covers urbanism, innovations in urban design, architecture, and environmental sustainability. She's the author of a recent article in Business Insider entitled, Only 20% of Americans Will Own a Car in 15 Years, New Study Finds. Leanna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So this study that you are, that you are referencing, uh, it was from uh, Rethink a Think Tank. Can you tell us a, a bit about that study? Yeah, sure. Um, I think off the back, though, it's important to acknowledge that most of these kind of far-sweeping studies that look at national trends, its conclusions aren't going to be applicable to every city, every town. I mean, when we look at trends, while studies like these can offer insights about where the U.S. is generally moving, we don't want to pretend like every city in the U.S. is experiencing these trends at the same rate. And I think it's important to look at local trends and solutions, too, based on the needs of particular communities and existing transit infrastructure. Um, that said, this study um, predicts only 20% of Americans, so one in five people, will own a car in 15 years. And to some degree, I think it makes sense, um, based on these trends we've been seeing. Uh, for the past two decades, um, car ownership has been on the decline. You know, fewer teens are getting their driver's licenses and users of ride-hailing services like Uber and Lyft keep rising, which doesn't mean that people aren't buying cars, but it gives people less of an incentive to do so. Um, you know, especially if they're young, they might opt for, hey, if I can do a ride share, why am I going to invest thousands of dollars in a newer used car, um, especially in urban areas where traffic is pretty tough. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, when you think about, so just take that stat, right, uh, that, you know, private car mm -hmm. ownership will drop 80% by 2030 in the U.S. I mean, that's a, it's a staggering number when you, when, you know, when we're watching where, you know, where we are as a country right now. And, and so that, with that trend, I think for many people, they'll hear that and they just think, you know, no way, there's no way that can be real. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, I mean, I think 
the predictions around the staff are pretty interesting, um, especially, you know, how fast they expect to happen. I think this would be a really accelerated future um, that we're moving towards. And my personal view is that these trends are and will happen, but maybe not as fast as this particular study. Um, some other stats that um, it found is that the number of passenger vehicles on American roads will go from 247 million in 2020 to 44 million in 2030. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this would be a huge shift and would require a major rethinking about local infrastructure. And it would require large investments in public transit, which, you know, can really change depending on who's in office in these local governments and on a national level and what kind of incentives these governments are giving for different types of projects. And when cities think about urban transit, they think, you know, they realize that there's a snowball effect. It's not just about getting from point A to point B. It's about access to jobs, access to retail, access to grocery stores, you know, access to living in more faraway neighborhoods um, from a city center. I mean, I live here in the New York City area, and I live in Brooklyn, and the only reason why I'm able to live here is because this city has done a really good job about investing in public transit. And, you know, the city also realizes that, too, so that they can collect more property taxes from building owners. So all of these things are related, right? It's not just about, like, Oh, you know, consumer trends in terms of buying cars. It's really interconnected into how we've set up our cities, what kind of incentives we're giving um, to people. And, you know, all these things, they make a city's economy run smoothly. Um, I already know people that have personally opted to not buy a car and just rely on Uber all the time. And they say that they have saved money by sort of using this subscription transit (laughs) um, through that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I think all of that is exciting, but, you know, if we want to think about a vision of the future and will everyone be using Uber, I really hope not because I don't think it would be good for Uber to have a monopoly on how cities move. It's very convenient. It's very fun. A lot of people love it, but it's a lot of responsibility, and these companies collect a lot of data, and they are largely not sharing the cities. And, you know, how do we know that they're using that data? And how would we know for sure that they have the best interests at heart when we don't, when they don't have any legal incentives to? And I don't think that, and I think a lot of urbanists would agree with me that transportation should not be something that is completely wrapped up and dependent on corporate interests. And that's where it can get a little fuzzy with these rideshare companies. You know, it's, I don't think it would be realistic or equitable. I mean, if we're unsure if the per, I'm unsure if the personal car market is going to be completely disrupted by Uber as much as public transit is. Um, you know, Uber exists because of venture capital money, which is why its fares are so low. And it's interesting to think about what kind of message we're sending to, at least, you know, where I live in New York City, that you know when an uber pool is two dollars and the subway is 275 why would you ever (laughs) take the subway um when you can just jump in an uber pool 
Especially so, when, you, when you consider yeah. the, the future of so much of the ride sharing is also uh, going to be uh, you know autonomous vehicles, so that it has a, an employment implication, and that's a whole mm-hmm. nother show that, that we should get to at some point, kind of the, the future of that. But um, but it does actually bring up an interesting point, though, right? Because the counter to that argument is this: you know, there's another really interesting stat uh, uh, that that came out is that you know 85 uh, the, for U.S. cars uh, that they sit parked. 95 percent of Mm -hmm. the time um and so that's a lot of room to take up and and frankly it's a lot of uh you know there's a lot of energy then for and for people buying a vehicle that for the vast 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 majority of the time that vehicle is just sitting there um so when people say what the argument against ownership is you're owning something that frankly you're continuing to pay on amortizing at not nowhere near the pace of the acquisition price why would i then own it? Why would I own something that I know is going to be sitting there for the vast majority of of time? And so it feels like that's also that argument then plays into this bigger debate and conversation taking place as well about the future of ownership. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's also something that cities are becoming increasingly frustrated with. I mean, we spend all this money on cars, right, which create pollution. And even when they're not moving, they're not efficient because they're sitting in a parking spot. So, and most urban areas are plagued by increasing traffic and you can fit way more people in a bus than a car. Like that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's this big trend actually towards cities thinking about how they can use more, use space more efficiently. And there's this rising theory in urban planning that giant parking lots and highways are not good for cities when it comes to equity because they will often separate communities um, from each other and just act as dead space. I mean, like think of a Walmart or a stadium parking lot. When that's not being used, it's essentially just empty space and what some urbanists call border vacuums. And if we look at the rise of ride shares, there could be this future where instead of owning a car, people would use a sort of subscription service with carpooling, which means that these cars would not be parked as much as when you would traditionally own a car because they would just be continually be dropping people off with a curbside service, right? So so there's there's that kind of vision. And then right now, many cities are also redeveloping parking to make for other uses. Um, San Francisco, I don't know if anyone has seen these, but for the past couple of years, they have what are called parklets. And there are many parks that were parking spaces. So there's somewhere to sit sometimes there's like a little table there's greenery flowers really cute um another big user um of parking throughout the u.s are shopping malls (laughs) which um i'm sure a lot of listeners have maybe seen in the news are really going through some hardships that are on the decline and some malls are turning their parking lots into things with other uses for revenue Hmm. like farmers markets um, or housing developments or even bus stations actually one of the country's first modern malls the Northgate mall in northern seattle is turning many of its parking spaces into a light rail station which will connect the neighborhood to downtown seattle and then other parts of the lot have been turned into led um or lead sorry lead certified apartments 
um, senior housing, a medical center, more retail space. There's even a bios whale that keeps runoff away from the nearby creek. And we are seeing this as a national trend, too, like just kind of rethinking, do we actually need to have this parking lot here? What kind of use is it serving, um, especially as cities become more populated? You know, we were seeing this flock from the suburbs to the cities, we need to become smarter about how we're using space. And so, you know, we're seeing this in other cities too, like New York City, Iowa City, and San Diego, they're, they're kind of sharing these similar pedestrian-friendly visions, you could say. But the, the authors of, just to go back to the study, the authors of this study believe that parking will eventually become something that's more obsolete. So cities, you know, will need to rethink planning and road infrastructure decisions in that way. I'm not going to pretend that people in these, you know, people that live in places that are more rural and they depend on their car to get to their job, you know, I'm not looking at those people. I'm really just looking in these kind of like congested urban areas Um, or, you know, other communities like people who are physically disabled. Yes, of course, the car is going to serve this purpose. Um, But I, you know, although these trends are exciting and you can look at these individual projects and you can see general trends moving in this area, I do see there is this sort of um, clinging to the car. One um, wider trend that I think could be considered problematic, well, actually it is problematic, um, is cities are still not taking climate change seriously. They're building these huge mega developments right on these waterfronts. Um, and then when they get flooded and destroyed, they're surprised. And I think cities still haven't caught up in terms of zoning. They're not preparing for what all of these studies are saying are coming um, in terms of the flood risk zones. And in New York, you know, we saw Hurricane Sandy hit us really hard. It basically destroyed most of our subway infrastructure. It's a problem we're still dealing with. Um, a whole train line is going to shut down for at least a portion of a few years um, because of this do the repairs and it's it's costing the city millions and millions of dollars and I think that climate change especially when we look at flood risk can be something that feels like a far-off future and it's not Um, (laughs) we've, we've already seen cities that are grappling with it I will say that there are some cities that are starting to take things seriously but it's on a smaller scale, um, you know, where they're building fl- more flood-resistant development. Um, actually, how this relates back to cars is sort of interesting because if we think about, okay, if we're moving away from parking lots, that could be something that could have a, excuse me for my pun, but a ripple effect um, on flood resistance because if you are building fewer parking lots, less cement, ideally you're replacing that with green space, um, which is a natural water absorbent. So, you know, this is a problem that Houston really saw during Hurricane Harvey, and it's seen a rapid amount of urban development in the past 10 years, and the city did not put as many kind of, you know, water absorbent green spaces and where it should have. So when all this flooding hit, you know, all the inches and inches of water, the water had nowhere to go. Mm. So it destroyed all these homes. But if you have more 
of these sort of flood-resistant green spaces, that can be a way to deter water. It can be a way for it to naturally seep into the ground or, you know, flow into another kind of outlying water area. Um, some cities are, you know, we think about smart cities. A lot of cities are looking at their drainage systems and they're updating that so they can track in real time how water is moving, you know, to prepare for a disaster like that. I think especially if you're a city that's anywhere near a coast, that could that should be, you know, a really big priority because when these storms hit, it's, you know, it's really destructive. It's really sad. And it's a lot of money. And to do the repairs, to just prepare for the future is a lot less expensive than to do the repairs. Yeah. If that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. I think that's right. We've been speaking with Leanna Garfield, who is a journalist who covers urbanism, uh, also innovations in urban design, architecture, and environmental sustainability. Leanna, this has been great. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hi, I am Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. So today on the show, we've been discussing the future of ownership. With minimalist movements trending and economic indicators pointing toward a growing sharing economy, are we leaving the world of private ownership behind? So on the surface, it might sound like we've got nothing to lose. Less stuff, less stress, less pollution, less litter. Less is more, after all. But we are joined now by a writer who complicated this issue in an extremely poignant way. After all, these things, this stuff, is often representative of so much more, of family ties, of stability, security, and of home. We are joined now by Arielle Bernstein, who is a writer based in Washington, D.C. Her work has appeared in Salon, The Rumpus, and Pank Magazine. She teaches writing at American University, Go Eagles, and she is an author of the Atlantic article, Marie Kondo and the Privilege of Clutter. Arielle, it is so great to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So for those of us who, who do not know, who is Marie Kondo? Oh, gosh, Marie Kondo. Um, I think she would call herself a professional organizer. Um, she's become very famous. Um, many of you have probably heard of her books. Um, the first one was The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, um, and she has several other ones. They're basically organizational guides um, that really come from her Shinto tradition of how to be um, making decisions about the things that you're keeping in your home um, by asking the question of whether or not an item that is in your home is sparking joy for you. Um, and it seems like a very, um, I think one of the reasons that it's captured the imagination of so many people um, is that it's a premise that on its surface is actually very simple. Um, but if you look a little bit beneath the surface, it's actually this deeply complicated kind of question of how the objects that you surround yourself with um, are either sparking joy or are just kind of clutter that is filling up your home for no good purpose. It's, I mean, that's such a fascinating bar 
uh, and such a fascinating frame to understand what belongs in your space. Like, does it give you joy? It's, it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, it is. I think that um, one of the reasons that I think she's captured our imagination so much right now um, is that especially um, with the fact that we, we have, you know, we have a lot of stuff in our, um, our physical lives, but I think that we also have a lot of stuff like in our digital lives and things in general feel like they're very cluttered and overwhelming. And I think that um, this idea of scaling back that uh, condo offers, I think offers us a really unique kind of perspective on how to how to manage all those things that we have in our lives. And it seems like you came to this from a very personal perspective, right? So, I mean, you, you wrote this article back in 2016 that I, that I referenced, uh, but it seems more relevant than ever. Uh, you know, Marie Kondo's movement has only grown. But you start this essay by explaining a common experience at weddings where you see old photos of parents and grandparents on display. Uh, when you were planning your own wedding, this brought up a complicated set of emotions. So can you tell us a bit about your family? Of course. Um, So on my mother's side, my family comes from Cuba. Um, My grandparents are Eastern European Jews who escaped the Holocaust and both went to Cuba when they were children. Um, They didn't travel together, but they came there at different times. Um, They met in Cuba. They met in Havana. Um, There they had my mother and my aunts. Um, And then uh, as a family, they emigrated to the United States in the late 60s, and my mom was 16. Um, So I was born in the United States, but my family tradition is very much um, one that you know, has this historical experience of having to give up a lot of, a great deal of of physical possessions. Um, You know, and I I think that it's not, um, you know, one of the things that Kondo kind of stresses is that it's really not the physical possessions that we're necessarily talking about when we're talking about the items that spark joy for us. Um, So that's something that's been very interesting to me, um, is sort of thinking about in my family history how um, having these items has felt essential, not necessarily because of the individual things, but kind of what they represent in terms of having a home and having the ability to actually save things and pass them down to the next generation. So for you, these, this, this, this idea of these assets, it's less about practicality and optimization. It's really more about emotion and belonging. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you, know, for, you know, we tend to have an attitude, I, I think, especially in the U.S., that there's certain types of happiness that can be bought. So that like, you know, and especially with like sort of very conspicuous kind of consumption and that getting these more expensive items will will eventually uh, lead us to happiness. Um, And I don't think that's true at all. I think that's one of the things that interests me about um, what Marie Kondo is kind of offering in terms of a different perspective. You know, some of the things that I think sparks most joy for for me when I look about around the items in my home um, are things, some of them have things that are of a sentimental nature and some of them are obviously kind of sentimental objects. Um, But other things are a little bit more subtle than that. And I think that, um, the complication about what what sparks joy for you is often, maybe using the word cluttered, is often cluttered by sort of this conversation about what things should spark joy for you. Um, You know, will it be a little post-it note that, you know, my husband's left for me on the kitchen counter? For me, you know, keeping items like that might be very, very meaningful. Um, But I do think there's a lot of social pressure in our, in American culture today to kind of um, hang on to certain types of items that um, will demonstrate that you're, that you're happy, that you're successful, that you're doing well. But, you know, it's interesting because I think for, for some people, they'll say, well, there is that point of that where you're starting to border on hoarding, where people find sentimentality in, in, in everything. How, how do you draw that line? And when people give that as a pushback, what then becomes your response? Yeah, you know, um, I, I'm absolutely not writing uh, in defense of hoarding. And I think obviously um, for people who have a difficult time getting rid of things, and there's different degrees, but there's a point where you can't just keep everything. Um, so I, I think what, 
what I'm interested in is sort of figuring out, okay, you know, how do we sort of really figure out what things are uh, giving us happiness as opposed to, you know, what are the things that we're sort of being pressured to within our society? Um, you know, it's been, it's been three years since I've written the article, and I think that it was very interesting to me to actually, um, one of the reasons there's this resurgence right now is because of the her new Netflix TV show, Tidying Up, which is incredibly successful. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really different for me watching the show. Um, you know, I was really interested to kind of check it out after I had read her books. And it was interesting to me to see her go into different homes and really talk to different families, some of which really, they all have sort of different, um, they're coming to their own clutter in different ways and kind of seeing the way that she works. Um, I wondered, you know, what would this actually be like? You know, what would, what would it be like to have Marie Kondo visit if my grandparents were still alive? How would she help them kind of sort through their own clutter? Mm. Um, and I think that it was interesting seeing the show just because it's such a dynamically different experience for me than reading the book. You say something in your article that I was really taken by. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm going to read a few lines for, for our listeners. Y you say, like many who are privileged enough to not have to worry about having basic things, I tend to idolize the opposite, the empty spaces of yoga studios, the delightful feeling of sorting through a pile of stuff that I can, di that I can discard. I'm not alone in appreciating the lightness and freedom of a minimalist lifestyle. The Murray method, a popular practical philosophy for decluttering your home, has tapped into a major cultural zeitgeist. I think this is so true, you know, that so many of us have dreams of just losing all the stuff uh, and that it seems so representative of all the stressful things in our lives. But it seems like what you're saying is that this is actually a really privileged position to be taking, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and the title of my piece, The Privilege of Clutter, for me, this piece is really about noticing the generational difference in how I viewed stuff versus how my mom and my grandparents did. Um, and I think that for me, I always really enjoyed getting rid of things. Um, for me, it does feel like a lot of the stuff that we carry with us feels like it's heavy and feels like it's, you know, quote unquote baggage. But I think that for my mom and for my grandparents, um, stuff had a very, very different meaning. I think that it was definitely something which was taking great pride in taking care of things that weren't necessarily um, just that type of conspicuous consumption, but just things that really symbolized the home. And it just seems like, you know, we're, uh, we're having very complicated conversations in the country right now uh, about social inequities, about refugees, about immigrants, about belonging, uh, about what parts of our history do we hold on to and cherish, and then what parts are we willing to relinquish for something else. Um, how do conversations about ownership reveal our innate misunderstandings about other people's backgrounds or, or maybe uh, maybe an ignorance about our, our own privilege? I think what I wanted to say is that there, there's value in things that maybe on the surface don't seem valuable. Um, and that they, I think that there's definitely a push to value certain types of uh, conspicuous consumption. And one of the things that I'm really hoping for, you know, and I am um, working towards a longer book on this, is getting people to be more, have more empathy and compassion towards people who maybe have different patterns of consumption mm -hmm. through their family history, through um, the fact that they don't have the means to purchase certain things. So to have more compassion and understanding, but also maybe to see those objects in different ways. Um, to not necessarily just assume that an object doesn't have value because it doesn't have value for you or it doesn't have um, value or in society at large. 
or that there might even be certain things that that we hold on to that have a sense of value that uh, that others might not understand why that has a sense of value as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a gap between actually, you know, I was really struck. I was, I was watching a lot of interviews with Mari Kondo, and there was one where she was talking to a young woman who was in medical school and who was trying to understand Mari Kondo's philosophy about things sparking joy. And she was saying, you know, I have all these MCAT textbooks, and I, I really, I just, you know, I need them because I'm studying um, for these exams, but they don't spark joy for me at all. Um, and it was interesting because Kondo kind of responded that, you know, she paused and she said, oh, well, you know, because they are useful for you or because they're serving a certain purpose, that that would be attached to joy. And I thought that was so interesting because I think that um, that wasn't, I, I don't think that's necessarily the interpretation of the KonMari method that I've been seeing a lot of people, you know, in blogs and in different articles that are analyzing her methods. I think the there's a different understanding of joy that perhaps um, actually thinking more carefully about this sort of Japanese philosophy towards it, maybe maybe it's that approach that we actually need to be taking into greater consideration rather than the kind of, um, you know, in, in 2016 when I wrote this article, every time people talked about Marie Kondo, it was very much this um, sort of Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, Goop-esque kind of fascination with just this very beautiful kind of minimalist look. Um, and I think she actually is probing us to go a little bit deeper. And I think that what I hope my article does and what I hope my book eventually does is help people to go a little bit deeper and thinking about why do we assume that there's there's one way to have joy from from our things or from our lack of things. And so what is your advice to listeners who have been, you know, taken in by tidying up, um, you know, that that, you know, have been kind of, you know, taken in by the by this by this movement? What is your advice, uh, you know, to them? And also, what's your advice to those who, you know, really kind of take it with a grain of salt? big thing, like for me, it was very, I became very emotional with watching the episodes of Tidying Up just because I did think that her approach um, worked differently for different families. So I think that often people go into the KonMari method. KonMariing has become sort of this verb where it's like basically just needs to tidy your apartment. Hmm. Uh, And I think that hopefully people aren't just trying to get their homes to be aesthetically pleasing for someone else. But that it really is more about not only looking inwards into the individual, um, which I think a lot of people talk about with the KonMari method, but actually thinking about our family history, thinking about why that, the items that we value and that we cherish are important to us. Um, I also I think that it's important to sometimes hesitate a little bit before throwing something away. Um, it's something that I definitely, I know that I've had a generational um, kind of dispute with my, with my family for a long time over, you know, I tended to be someone who was quick to toss things. Um, And I think I've changed a little as I've gotten older. And part of that is, you know, um, my grandparents aren't alive anymore. I think I feel more um, responsibility towards holding on to these traditions and also just holding on to the idea that, you know, the family story that we had, which you don't necessarily have objects to show for it, um, but that those stories really matter. Final question for you, Ariel. Do, Do you do a spring cleaning? I do. You do. I do. Um, and I, yes. <laughs> so what, so what is in your, what is in your spring cleaning normally? And, and what type of things uh, will never be a part of your spring cleaning? Yeah. You know, I do, I do semester cleanings too, since I'm a, I'm a professor. And so at the end of every semester, I'll <laughs> go through the different things that, you know, we, we had over the course of the semester. So, um, you know, in the fall and in the spring at the end of the semester, kind of going through everything. Um, the things that are the hardest for me to get rid of are, are the things that are truly sentimental. Um, like anything that has to do with like letters, um, like little notes, um, 
you know, I'm a writer, so things that are written tend to have tremendous value for me. Um, and it's really hard for me to give it away. Um, there was this Atlant- another Atlantic article that I read recently, I guess in the last year or two, that had to do with um, throwing away your, your children's art and that really it was okay to throw away your children's art because, um, you know, childhood is impermanent and that it's actually getting rid of it is, is, can be very liberating for both parent and child. Um, and my heart just ached when I read this article because I really, um, to me, there is value there. And I love now, you know, going back and, you know, visiting my parents' house. I love kind of going through the old things from our childhood and kind of seeing those memories and seeing pictures. Um, I think that my attitude has also changed. Um, you know, I, we opened this conversation talking a little bit about um, digital spaces, but, you know, we have different ways of cataloging those memories right now. Um, and so I think that sometimes keeping keeping visual records of those things or keeping audio records of those things, not necessarily keeping a physical copy. Um, but there is something still so special about those physical copies, too. Ariel Bernstein is a writer based in Washington, D.C. She is the author of the Atlantic article, Marie Kondo and the Privilege of Clutter. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. So as we close out this show, I'd like to leave everyone with a few thoughts. You know, when we come up, we are taught that the first mark of adulthood is when you start owning things, owning cars, owning homes, owning wardrobes. It's the mark of independence. But for many, it's also the mark of dependency. Keeping up with the Joneses and keeping up with items that by definition are fleeting and also depreciating. Some think this conversation is born out of an economic necessity. Some base it on a practical reality. Some base it in a swearing off of materialism. And some with an awakening towards societal obligation. But regardless of how we got here, we definitely are here. And we're here at a place where inequities make ownership less likely, or in many cases, even less desirable. Where our balance sheet power is not in our assets, but it's in our lack of liabilities. And our future city is one where all forms of sharing, including sharing of our economies, is not only needed, but required. Future City is an original feature of WYPR. The show airs on the third Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. You can explore past episodes online at wypr.org slash podcastcentral. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Wes Moore. Thanks for listening. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fidler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.